You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. Glad you could join me on the podcast this week. We're having such a great time in our study of 1 Peter. This week, during week four, we talked about our identity and mission as God's people in the world. When we believe in Christ, we become a part of something much bigger than ourselves, and our lives gain a purpose that they didn't have before. We're called not only to know Christ, but also to make him known in the world around us. This is the mission and the identity that Peter lays out for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. To find out more about our Ladies Bible Study here in Brandon, Mississippi, visit LeslieAnnJones.com. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the truth and goodness that you have given us here. I pray that you will speak to us during this time, that we would hear your voice, God, that you would give us the ears to hear, the minds to understand, Lord. God, and that you would impress your truth upon our hearts and our minds so that we may be changed by it and become the people that you have called us to be. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So many of you know that Dennis and I met at Mississippi State at the Baptist Student Union. I don't know if you knew that part or not. Um, It's apparently a family tradition because that is also where his parents met. It is also where some of his cousins met their spouses, so that's, that's just what Joneses do. We go to the BSU at Mississippi State and meet people and marry them. So, you know, that's beside the point. When I was a freshman there, there were all these banners on the wall of this logo, and this was it. Did anybody go to a BSU or BCM, Baptist Campus Ministries, anywhere? Okay, so does this look familiar to you? It was not just the one at Mississippi State that used it. This one came from... I think it was from Texas State, whose website I pulled it off of this afternoon. So this is a national Southern Baptist Baptist Student Union logo. And I remember standing in front of it being like, well, that's kind of different. Like, where's the cross? 
you know, that's what we put on all of our symbols is a cross, but it's just this random collection of arrows, like what, what's happening here. So I asked Miss June, who was the associate director of the BSU at State, what it was all about. And she said that I was actually made up of arrows pointing in the white space and arrows pointing out. How many of you had noticed both arrows before? I only saw the black ones originally, yes? So there's arrows going in and arrows going out and that it reflects the mission of the Baptist Student Union, which is to know Christ and to make him known. And I have never forgotten that description because it seems to me like it's a good mission for all of us to live out in life, to know Christ and to make him known. So as I was studying this passage and thinking through the different parts of it, that logo came back to me because I feel like that's what Peter is really getting at here. As believers, we are no longer just members only of ourselves, but we also belong to God and to each other, to the church with a capital C. And we share an identity and a purpose in this world that is bigger than us. And it's all bound up in knowing Christ and coming to know him in faith and then growing in our knowledge of him as as a believer and in changing our behaviors and kind of molding our lives around what it means to know Christ and to be his and then turning around and taking that knowledge out into the world and to proclaiming it into the world around us. Peter was writing to people who were struggling to find their place in the world, who didn't really belong in the world around them. And in these verses, he gives them both an identity and a purpose for their life during this time of their exile, where people are maybe not liking their message People are maybe rejecting them in the same way that Jesus was rejected. And Peter is telling them that their identity and their purpose is as big as the God who has called them out of darkness and into the marvelous light. And as believers, then, 2,000 years later, we share that same purpose and identity. That is the same for the church across the ages. Nothing has changed that's still the goal, that we would know him and make him known. So let's jump in, see what Peter has to say. So the first section I've got, I've got roughly divided into two sections, these 12 verses, knowing Christ in verses 1 through 6 and making him known in verses 7 through 12. So that's the direction we're going with that. So chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Knowing Christ starts with individual growth. So remember, we talked about this a few minutes ago. In the verses prior to this, Peter has been encouraging them to love one another earnestly. And this tiny little word here at the beginning of verse 1, so, is one of those hinge words. It's a word just like therefore from last week. It's because I've said this, so you should do this. Because you should love one another This is how you do it. You start by putting away these things. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And the word that he uses for put away is the kind of word that talks about taking off dirty or soiled clothing and getting rid of it. It's the kind of thing that you would be glad, like you would not want to keep it on. It should be disgusting to you. When I think about disgusting, soiled clothes, I think about the first time I had to throw away one of my child's onesies because of the diaper blowout that went all the way up and into her hair. 
And it did not matter to me how cute that little ladybug outfit was. Like, it had to go. So, you know, like, peeling it off and, like, trying not to touch anything. It doesn't matter. It's all over me and her. I mean, just poop everywhere. And um, not even trying to clean it because it was that bad, that nasty. And straight into the trash. Has anyone else? I mean, I know I'm not the only one. Who else has thrown away children's clothing? It's just not, not, not worth it. Um, straight into the trash. And then by the time, you know, I took a, sh- you know, we both got clean, getting the bathtub together. Like, let's get clean. And then that trash bag that it went in would also went straight out of the house because it was nasty. I didn't want it anywhere near me anymore. Could not stand to have it in the house. Y'all, those diapers, oh, I do not miss all of those days. The stench was just too much to bear. I had to go. <laughs> And that's what Peter's getting at here. These things, these practices should be so disgusting to us, so off-putting and detestable that we would get rid of them in the same way that we would a onesie that has been the victim of a diaper explosion. We wouldn't keep that around. You wouldn't put it back in the drawer and put it back on your child the next day, would you? Yeah, nobody would choose that. No, and that's what he's saying here for us. Every single one of these practices has to do with attitudes and behaviors that are harmful to others. It's not just, you know, a little harmless gossip, but that it's actually hurtful and the opposite of loving someone earnestly. So whether it's outright vindictive behavior or gossip over coffee with your friends saying, did you hear about... There's no difference, really, because it is destructive and unfitting for those of us who are in Christ. Because here's the thing. We're never going to be able to love one another well if we're so busy tearing one another down at the same time. So sin seeks to harm others, but love seeks the good of others. And that's what Peter says we need to be about. We are called to both truth and love. And for that, we need something else entirely. He says in the next verses that we need pure spiritual milk. Verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So we're going to carry on with our baby metaphor because that's what Peter uses here. He has said in that previous section that we talked about last week, you have been born again. Now he's saying since you have been born again, like a baby long for the pure spiritual milk so what is the pure spiritual milk the word of god god's truth Um, that is what we feed on as believers because it is the way that god has chosen to reveal himself to us throughout time and history is through the word god has chosen to show himself to us in this way and so if we want to know him we have to turn to his word to grow in him so How do newborns crave milk? It says, like newborns, crave it. So how do newborns crave milk? Loudly. And what? Yes, they're hungry. Like they cannot, mm -hmm, nothing else will do. How about often? So not everyone in this room has had children. Um, There's no way to prepare you for that reality of feeding a newborn every two to three hours. 
Like you think you know, but you don't know how sleep deprived you can be until every two to three hours. And that's from start time to start time. So if it takes them an hour to eat, then when they finish an hour later, you're feeding them again. Newborns are loud and insistent and you can't just ignore it and be like, oh, they'll go back. They're not going to go back to sleep or give you any relief until you give them what they want. And what do they want? Milk. They want to be fed because they need it. It's their nourishment. What happens to a baby if you do not give them milk? Or if they don't get enough of it? Let's say you're feeding them, but you're not feeding them enough. They don't gain weight like they're supposed to. They don't grow like they're supposed to. And when you take them into the doctor for their next well baby appointment and they put them on the scale, what happens? You get fussed at because you're not feeding them. And your baby gets marked with failure to thrive, which is not a good situation. I had a child who had trouble gaining weight. It didn't matter. I mean, she just didn't. It was awful, awful. And, I mean, whew, bad memories coming back. It was bad. It was really bad. First time mom weeping in the car after the doctor's appointment. It was so bad because I wanted to feed my child what she needed. And, and she wasn't thriving in the way that she should be. So we changed up things, and she did. The next appointment, she gained weight, and everything was fine. So, you know, we, clearly she's 10 years old now. We, we're fine. Um, but newborns who don't eat as often as they should for as long as they should do not gain weight and grow in the way that they, God has intended them to grow. And so Peter says that like them, we need to crave it. So how should we crave the Word of God? Loudly and often? <laughs> <laughs> Every two to three hours, you got to get your fix. <laughs> I, I think he, yes, just be, nobody would look at you strange at all if you screamed for it the way a newborn does. No, but what if you sought it with the same intensity that a newborn does? See, I think for a lot of us, we do, we lack that intensity, and it's not necessarily something that we consider a need. I mean. We would probably say that we need it, but our actions speak another language, right? Because what we do first is brush our teeth and use the bathroom and get dressed and take a, sh- well, take a shower and get dressed and, you know, fix our coffee and eat breakfast and do all these things. And then, oh my goodness, I, I got to go. I'm out of time. And so we treat it as uh, when I have time, I will do this, as opposed to a need for our nourishment and for our very life. And as a result, many of us are failing to thrive in the life that God has planned for us. The word of God is life for us. And without a steady diet of it, we will fail to thrive. It's where we meet with God. It's where we see him and we know him and we're challenged and convicted. It's where we are encouraged by him. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So when we come to the word, it's like tasting over and over and over again of God's goodness. It's like stopping to sip and to savor of his wonderful ways and to let that feed us and carry us through the days of our lives. That sounds like a soap opera. This is what one of the commentaries I read said, to drink the milk of the word is to taste over and over again what the Lord is like. Don't we need that reminder? 
because the world tries to tell us what God is like. If God was good, he wouldn't. No, but we need the word of God to tell us who God is. Not what we think God should be like or our own human reasoning, but the word. That's where we meet God. The commentary continues to say that this practice, if we will do this, it gives us both delight and satisfaction. You know, a baby who has been satisfied with that milk that they crave, there's just nothing like the smiles that you'll get after you've given them that bottle or nursed them. They're the sweetest moments, and they're, I mean, you, you want to hold the baby when they're full. You don't want to hold the baby when they're screaming, their head's off for the, like, you want to hold them when they're milk happy, milk drunk, whatever you want to call it. Those are sweet moments, right? So when we feast on the Word of God, it gives both delight and satisfaction. I could keep talking about this for a really long time, but I'm going to move on. If you want to grow spiritually, though, we have to take off those things that hinder those things like malice and envy and deceit, all those things that he was talking about there, and put on something better. We have to take in a steady diet of truth so that we can grow in our knowledge of Christ. So that's individually, right? That's something we have to do on our own. Now, we do some of it collectively, like right now we're doing it collectively, but individually as well, that's something that we have to do. But then Peter turns to collective growth. And this is something that really flies in the face of our very individualistic culture. Because we live in a culture that wants you to believe that what you do is your business. You do you. I'll do me. You need to go to church on Sunday morning because that's how, you know, you, you were raised and that's where you meet with God. But I can meet with God in my pajamas in my living room with my Bible by myself. You know, we, we are very... Into, like, we don't talk a lot, unless you're really close friends with somebody, we don't talk a lot about our spiritual lives with one another. It's not, because it's awkward to bring up, so what's God been teaching you lately? Um, unless you're very close to someone. And as a result, we are kind of alienated from one another in all the ways that really matter. Um, but Peter turns and he's talking about growing together as a body of believers into something else. So verses 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, y'all, that's a y'all word, not just you individually, but y'all are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we come to him, that's what it says in verse 4. As you come to Jesus initially in faith, but you don't just stop coming to him, right? Is that the only time you come to him, near, near to him? No, you come near to him in prayer. You come near to him in worship. You come near to him in his word. You continually draw near to the Lord. To who? A living stone who has been rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. And this living stone is Jesus, right? We come to him individually, and we come to him together. It says, why? Because God is taking each one of us, individual living stones, and he's building us up into something else entirely. One rock by itself isn't very impressive. A pile of rocks on the side of the road isn't very impressive either. But, you know, a master craftsman can pick up that random pile of rocks and turn it into a retaining wall that serves a purpose, right? 
Well, here it says that God is building a house where he's taking each one of us individually and fitting us all together um, into something marvelous. And so this is why Peter is urging them and us to love one another earnestly because our petty differences and the little squabbles that we may have with one another are inconsequential compared to what God is doing. It's like, it's not about you. This is about God. He's building you into something. He's doing something with you. So when you become a Christian, you no longer belong just to yourself. Like you're not a Christian. You're not part of the church just because you go to church. You're part of the church when you believe in Jesus Christ. And call him your Lord. And belonging to Christ means that you belong to the church. You belong to him. You belong to the church. And so you're not on your own anymore. You are part of something else. You can't do the Christian life alone. If you are going to live out the purpose that God has called you to in this life that we're going to get into here in the next few verses. Then you need the support and the influence and the wisdom and the help of the other believers around you. We need one another. So have any of you ever built a house? We've never built our own house. Yes. It takes a lot of raw material, right? So they're building a new house at the front of our neighborhood. So every, you know, we're driving past it multiple times a day. And I swear for a few weeks there, every time I drove past, there was like another wall. I'm like, where that came from? That wasn't there when I went to Walmart. And when I came back, there's a roof. It's just, you know, just appears. One day I drove past on the way out while the truck was there dropping off all the two by fours, timber, I don't know, the studs, lumber, dropping off a load of lumber. And literally when I came back from the grocery store, the first wall was up. There it was. And so on its own, that pile of lumber did not look very impressive, but they were taking those raw materials and turning them into a home. They weren't just, it's not just lumber anymore. It's not just a piece of wood. It's part of a home. And the same thing is true for us. You cannot read this and miss the allusions to the temple that are here. It says God is building us into a spiritual house. Now, a house is a place where someone lives. What does that mean? A spiritual house for who? For God, for the Holy Spirit. That's right. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God's glory dwelt among the people. If they wanted to meet with God, they had to go to the temple to do it. But on this side of Jesus and on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit dwells within us so that he is with us all the time. And that together, we're like a Holy Spirit embassy, I guess, in this foreign land that we're living in. So that, you know, we are housing him within us and showing the world around us what he is like. People came to the temple to draw near to the Lord and to meet with him. But, you know, Jesus was on the cross. The veil of the temple was torn down between the Holy of Holies where God's glory dwelt and the rest of the world. And now Peter's saying that the Holy Spirit is at home in our hearts. He no longer dwells in the building, but inside us. And we also know that one day we are headed back to heaven where we will dwell with God. You know, the, all of Bible, the Bible is about God dwelling with his people and he is dwelling with us now with the holy spirit 
So because he no longer dwells in a building and the priesthood in the old temple is obsolete, all of us who believe then are like a holy priesthood. That's what Peter says here, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So the job of a priest, what's the function of a priest? That's right. In the Old Testament, a priest was a mediator between God and men. So the people would bring the sacrifice and the priest would make the sacrifice on their behalf. So there is a sense in which priests do, you know, they make a way for people to draw near to the Lord. So there's that. Yeah. But now that's no longer happening, right? Because of the blood. of, but, But not just anybody could be a priest either. You had to be born into it. You had to be of the correct family. You had to, and not just like everybody got to go to the temple and make sacrifices. So even if you were a Levite, only some Levites went to the temple and only like one Levite got to be the high priest. So there was, they were the chosen of the chosen. And now Peter is saying that we are a royal priesthood, that we make spiritual sacrifices. We don't need a priest to do it for us anymore. So in your homework, there was some talk about what it means to make a spiritual sacrifice. What is that? A sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of time, of good that we do in the world. Basically, anything that we do in service to the Lord, because that's really what priests did, is serve the Lord at his temple. Anything that we do in service to him is a spiritual sacrifice. So this is what he is building us up to do, to do these spiritual sacrifices. And the reason that we can do it is through Jesus Christ, through his blood, because he has made it possible for us to draw near. Verse 6, it stands in scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter carries his spiritual house metaphor on by quoting this verse from Isaiah. And the cornerstone that he's talking about is Jesus. And the function of a cornerstone in building was to set a firm foundation. So it couldn't just be any rock. It was the first stone that was laid in a building. It had to be the right size. It had to be the right shape, the right quality. And, and, and what it did was as other stones were laid on top of it, it set the plumb lines and made sure that the whole building was straight and secure. So this verse is saying that Jesus Christ is a firm foundation. He is a straight and sure path to follow his ways are right but this the part that would have really meant something to the believers who were listening is this last part of the verse whoever believes in him will not be put to shame because this was the people who were being put to shame for their belief every day whether it was at work or at home in their families their friends they were being put to shame for what they believed So it must have been really sweet to them to hear these words and to get this reminder because we know how that feels. Christian beliefs are not necessarily the popular thing in this culture of ours that we live in. But this reminder is that your faith is worth it. You will not be put to shame. There's no shame in believing in Jesus. God is good. You can keep on believing because the cornerstone has been set. And God is doing something. He is building. He's not done. The shame is not for those who believe. The shame is for those who don't believe. And that's where he turns next in verses 7 through 8. It's the start of that second section of making Christ known. So we have, you know, we know we're growing individually and together in Christ. And now he turns to the real business at hand of making Christ known. So let's read verses 7 through 8. 
So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do those verses make you uncomfortable? That their disobedience was destined. This is the flip side of that predestination chosenness conversation. I think that's the question. It says that they were destined to disobey. What if people that you love were? Think about your unbelieving coworkers and friends, family members. Sounds a little contrary to the gospel, doesn't it? So I think it's sobering um, and hard. It's a hard truth. Okay, but this is what we're going to do. We'll, we'll talk through some of it. These verses are, are a reminder to us that those who reject Jesus will also be rejected by him. Okay, I think we can all accept that without any trouble. The problem the thing that trips us up is this part that it's almost like they didn't have a choice, that they were destined to do that, right? So let's look a little bit closer at this verse. First of all, it says that verse were destined to disobedience and stumbling, but it does not say that this is their final destiny, okay? It is describing a present tense reality for those who are currently unbelieving. So there's room here to assume that the goal is for them to become believers. And I think that we can go with this because, number two, the second part of this explanation is that it was also once our destiny. Okay, It is past tense for us who believe. But we also were disobedient, as was our destiny. We also disbelieved at some point in our lives. Because if you believe that um, God has foreknown and chosen us, then it means we had to be chosen out of something, that disbelief. Okay, so that was also once our destiny. It's past tense for us, and we live our lives now in the hope and in the prayer that it will someday also be past tense for those unbelieving friends and family members and coworkers that are around us. That it's not a once and for all, oh well, you don't believe, you're never going to believe. But that there is room for the gospel to shine in their lives. And that's why I find this next set of verses so encouraging. Because what changed your life? What moved you from the past tense of, you were destined to disobey to your present tense of you are chosen and accepted by God. Somebody spoke the truth of the gospel into your life. Somebody shined God's light into that darkness and invited you into it. And that is our mission as believers. See that next word that's there in verse 9? But, yes, there are some who don't believe. Yes, there are some who stumble. Yes, there are some who disobey. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every single one of these identities that Peter gives has to do with the mission of the church. So yes, it is wonderful that we are chosen, that we belong to the Lord, that he has claimed us as his own, but it is an identity that comes with a purpose. 
And this is something that we miss so often is that salvation is not about us. Yes, God loves you. Yes, he wanted you to be in heaven with him. But your salvation comes with a so that you have been saved so that you may give as much glory to God as humanly possible in your brief span of time on this earth. You have been saved so that you may proclaim the truth of the gospel in a dark and unbelieving world. So you can say to them that I was once in the darkness, but God called me into his marvelous light. So you can say I was once not a people, but now I'm part of a people. Now I'm part of something bigger. I once didn't have mercy, but now I do. Do you see? That is what we have been called into. That is where we are. The heart of who we are as God's people is tied up not in just I'm saved, but that I am saved. Glory to God. Let me tell you about it. That's why it's not just who we are, but also what we have been called to do. Think about it when people ask you about yourself, when you are telling people who you are, what do you start with? If I say I am a wife and a mother and a graphic designer and a writer, I tell you about the things that I do. And in those things that I do, you get a sense of my identity, right? So when we say that we are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, it means that we are people who serve the Lord, that we serve him. And that our calling isn't just so that we can live in heaven someday and yay for us, but so that we can show other people the way there. That's the point. That's why. And then he carries on these in verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Never, ever forget, Peter is telling them, that you do not belong here. This world is not your home. Do not act like the locals. Act like the strange foreigner that you are. Show them a better way. So there are all sorts of people, and this is something that we touched on last week in that whole section about judgment and being called to account for your actions. There were all sorts of people who say, how I live my life is my business. I've been saved, and it doesn't matter what I do, because I'm washed clean, and everything's okay. And Peter's saying, yes, it does matter. Because we invite people into the family of God. We share the gospel with our words. That was the last verses we read. We proclaim the truth, but also with our actions. With word and conduct, word and deed, we show people the goodness of God. So the way that we choose to live our lives is meant to be an expression of the gospel. And when he says abstain from the passions of the flesh, he's not just talking about sex. He's talking about all those things that are opposite of the fruit of the spirit. So if the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh-oh. You know, like the kids song. All those things. Then he's talking about anger and envy and lust and greed. You name it. Don't do those things because that's what the world does. You got to do the things of the spirit instead. And when you are filled with the spirit and you are controlled by those things, then what happens? When the outside world who hates you tries to speak against you and they will, 
they don't have anything bad to say because they can only think of the good that you've done. And what ends up happening is that they come to glorify God. And that's the goal. It says, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This word for glorify is never, ever used in the Bible by people who are not believers. So when the Bible uses this word, it is always in the context of those who belong to the Lord. Glorifying God is something that believers do. And the reason that it's so important for us in the church to put away malice and envy and deceit and long for the pure spiritual milk and to know Christ and to grow in our knowledge of him is so that, so that others may glorify God. Don't lose sight of the so that. Those two tiny connecting words make such a huge difference. Because if we just stopped at the end of verse 8, that would be a sad, sad story. But God has not left it so that there is no way out for those who do not believe. He has called us and chosen us to do something about it. So let our lives give honor and glory to him. Let us be a people who point to him and shine his marvelous light into the darkness that surrounds us so that those people that we know and love may come to know God and glorify him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and your truth, for your faithfulness and your um, mercy that you have shown us, God. God, we are so grateful and thankful that you chose us and called us out to be your people, God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your people, God, that you would create in us a desire for your word that is like that of a newborn's, God, that we would crave your truth, that we would grow and mature into the people that you have called us to be, God. And Lord, that we'd be a light for you, that your glory would shine forth from our lives, Lord, and God, that people would be captivated by you and more in us. Lord, let us be changed by your word. Transform us into your image. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.